This morning we're reading from Luke 10, starting with verse um, 25. There it is. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and he saw him and had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and sat him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said to him, He who showed mercy. Then Jesus said to him, Go, and do likewise. This is God's word for us this morning. Well, good morning. Uh, Go ahead and open up your Bibles to the passage that Linda just read there in Luke chapter 10, uh, beginning at verse 25. If you're new to the Bible, it's kind of in the back quarter of the Bible. Uh, where the words turn red, uh, or if you need to look it up at Table of Contents, or if you've got an app, go ahead and pull that out uh, to Luke chapter 10. Uh, in this series with our whole hearts, we are looking at what it means to follow Jesus, uh, that he invites us to follow him, uh, not just to a seminary class or a Bible study, but into a way of life, uh, that he intends for us to follow him in his way, because uh, as, he, as he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, the way that Jesus lives his life, rooted in the truth of who he is, will lead to the life that God intends for us, uh, that he shows us how to live. And so as we put into practice, or as we follow him in the way that he lived his life, it will lead to us uh, experiencing the truth of who he is, Uh, and being transformed to look like him, to love like him, to care like him, to act like him. And this is what it means to be a disciple or a student of the life of Jesus. Uh, Now we are talking about this through what we call a community rule of life. Uh, Not rules for life that you have to follow in order to belong, but a pattern or a template uh, for how we think about following Jesus today in our world, in our situation, in our community, uh, where we find ourselves right now. Uh, and that rule of life looks something like this diagram here on the screen or also on the back wall. 
Uh, it looks like there's a lot going on there, but there's actually a few important things to that. Uh, the center of that rule of life is this heart-shaped thing with five boxes in it. Uh, this represents uh, what Jesus said is the greatest commandment. Uh, when asked, what is the most important thing that you can do, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, so that box, those boxes there, there's five letters in there. The S stands for your social life. Uh, that Jesus says loving your neighbor is as important as loving God. And so how do you love God, or how is Jesus leading your relationships? The P stands for your physical life, your ability, your strength, as Jesus said. How are you loving him with your power, uh, with your money, with your physical life? Uh, the box there in the middle is the I, your intellect, uh, your thoughts, your opinions, your beliefs about who Jesus is uh, and what his world is all about. Beneath that dotted line is your interior life, uh, your emotional and your spiritual life. Uh, beneath the surface that we don't often see, but Jesus said that shapes everything about you. And so Jesus wants to lead your interior life, how you feel about yourself, God, and others. Uh, this is what it means to be a wholehearted disciple, to invite Jesus to lead every part of me. Uh, and that is, first and foremost, what it means to follow Jesus. As, as I follow him, he's going to challenge and conform and encourage some things in me so I look more like him. Uh, and out of that life then comes these practices, the, the way that Jesus lived his life uh, through what we call six Ps or six practices of wholehearted discipleship. That this is how I begin to put into practice the life that Jesus calls me to. Uh, the past three weeks, we looked at three practices of loving God. We looked at the practice of practice, which we said is embodying the values and teachings of Jesus. To actually put it into practice in my everyday life. That when Jesus says I should love my enemy, I should love my enemy. When he says that I should pray, I should pray. We do the things that Jesus calls us to. Uh, then we looked at the practice of prayer. The prayer is not just telling God uh, what I want or what I need, but it is opening up my attention and yielding my will to his power and presence in our world. And last week, we looked at the practice of pace, that God moves a little bit slower in our life than we might want, uh, but that is good, because as we slow down and trust him, uh, he does some stuff in us, where we're not trying to prove ourselves, but instead we're trusting him uh, to lead the way. Uh, so these are three kind of fundamental habits or practices for how we love God. Uh, now, the next three weeks, we're going to look at how we love our neighbor. Uh, but here's the hard part about the next three weeks. Uh, on one hand, it is easier to talk about loving God than it is to talk about loving your neighbor. Uh, because as long as I'm talking about loving God, it's still kind of a little abstract, and I can kind of make it a little, a little private. I can pray to God on my own time. Uh, I can slow down and practice a Sabbath on my own time. But as soon as I am talking about loving a real person in front of me, it's all already, right away, very clear that I'm not in control. It's not always comfortable, and it's often not convenient. Right? When I encounter a person in front of me, it is the clear sign that I'm not the center of the universe. And that this person has a will, they have a desire, they might have an opinion about me, I might have an opinion about them. And so loving your neighbor, loving real people gets really tricky. Because I can kind of compartmentalize loving God, but the person in front of me is a person. And they've got some things that they might have or want in their life. Uh, and so we tend to deal with this in one of two ways. Uh, one way is we kind of make loving people abstract or we say, I love people. 
But the real person in front of me, I'm not sure I love that person. I love the idea of loving people. I love people generally, maybe just not that person. And so we kind of make it a principle for my life. Of I should love people. Or we tend to make our spiritual life the priority over our love for our neighbor. And so we say, you know what, God, you're just going to have to change my heart about this person. And we kind of say, well, until God changes my heart, I'm just going to focus on my relationship with God, and I'm just going to kind of put this person secondary because I just need God to change my heart. When maybe God's saying, no, just go love your neighbor. And we kind of make our spiritual life more important than the people around us. But when you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus was very concerned about real people. Uh, He gathered real people around him. Right? He lived uh, in a real place, in real history, in real time with a culture, and he gathered people around him, and he lived life with them. And if you read the stories of how he lived life with these 12 people, like it was bumpy, there was conflict, uh, there was arguments, there was a lot of stuff that was difficult. Uh, but Jesus always seemed to be very concerned with the real person in front of him. In fact, in one of Jesus' most famous teachings in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is preaching a sermon Uh, And the whole town is there to see it. And in the middle of the sermon, it gets interrupted by someone, uh, by some friends lowering a paralytic man into the room. And rather than getting annoyed that his sermon was interrupted, he stops, he looks at the man in his face, and he heals him. And he invites that person to be part of what he is doing. Uh, Most times when Jesus heals someone or when he forgives someone's sins in the Gospels, he's looking at them in the face acknowledging who they are, especially people who are overlooked or who are otherwise kind of cast to the side. See, Jesus is very concerned with real people, not just people as an abstract idea, but with real people and the reality of their circumstances. Uh, and so, and Jesus even went so far to say this, that you cannot love God without loving people. That your love for people, your love for real people around you is a demonstration of your love for God. And that your love for God is expressed in your love for people. That these two things go hand in hand in the life of discipleship. So if you're going to follow Jesus, it is going to lead you to real people. And we see that in this teaching in Luke chapter 10. As you open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 10 verse 25, we find Jesus uh, with his disciples. Uh, He has just sent them out on a missions trip. They've gone throughout the region uh, preaching the gospel. And good things have happened. Powerful things have happened. And so they are returning to Jesus, and they're kind of in this celebration of what has happened. And in the middle of this scene, a lawyer steps up. Uh, Now, this is not a lawyer like you and I would think of, like someone who's going to go argue a case in court. This would be an expert in the Old Testament law. Someone who had studied and who had even memorized the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They were probably a commentator on it and an explainer on it for people. He knew his stuff. And he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, for us, in our ears, it sounds like he's asking, what do I have to do to get to heaven after I die? That's what we tend to think that question actually means. But this is a common question that teachers would be asked in that world. And really what it's asking is, what is your way? Like, what is the path to salvation? What is the road to the good life, the, God, the life that God intends? And so he's asking Jesus generally, what's your way? And what is the essence of your teaching? And Jesus flips it on him. Because he can tell that he's a lawyer, he's an expert, and so he wants to know what he says. And notice what he says in verse 27. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He sounds just like Jesus, like word for word what Jesus has said in other parts of the Gospels. Uh, And this demonstrates a level of expertise in what the Bible says because uh, these two ideas are in separate places in the Old Testament, but he brings these together and says this is the essence of what God teaches us in the law, that we should love people. He prioritizes love. He doesn't go to following the rules. He says, no, it's about love. And Jesus even affirms him. You've answered correctly. But then Luke tells us that he asks a follow-up question. And the follow-up question tells us everything that we need to know about him. Verse 29, he said, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, on the one hand, you could look at this question and say, It's a question of curiosity. Who is my neighbor? Like, help me understand. Is my neighbor like my literal neighbor? Is it anyone I encounter? Right? It kind of seems like it could be a question of just, hey, can you explain that a little bit more? But Luke tells us that he's trying to justify himself, which means that his question is not a question of curiosity. It's a question of exclusion. Who am I allowed to exclude, in other words? That he has some opinions already, He has some thoughts already, and he wants a kind of religious or spiritual excuse to exclude certain people from this category of neighbor that he is supposed to love. You see, this is a common controversy in Jesus' day. There's a lot of of teaching that said that when the law says love your neighbor, it only meant your Jewish neighbor, someone who is religiously and ethnically like you. Because in that day, the Jews were occupied and oppressed by the Romans. There was Greek influence. There's lots of other nations around them. And so the teaching in that day was that loving your neighbor in the Old Testament only means your religious and cultural friend, someone who's just like you. And he's looking for, what's the excuse? Or what's the exclusion? Or give me permission to not love them. And you see, I think if we were honest, We ask the same question, maybe just not explicitly. Say, okay, who am I allowed to exclude from loving? Because it's very easy to love people who are just like me. We have similar opinions, we have similar experiences, like we, there's a lot that's unspoken that we get, but as soon as I'm interacting with someone who's different than me, someone who looks different than me, or talks different than me, or comes from a different background than me, or has a different political persuasion than me, or has some kind of difference from me, it becomes a whole lot easier to say, how far do I actually have to love you? Do I have to include you on this? And so it's a whole lot easier to say, I would rather just love people who are like me. You see, we ask this question all the time. And the more different that we are, the more we tend to want to exclude. The more we tend to kind of have fear or assumptions about other people. That we think, okay, you're different than me. And so, and so those differences mean that it's harder for me to love you. And so I'll just kind of go over here and pray and hope God, that change, hope God changes my heart. When, when he's asking, what is the limits of the love that I'm supposed to offer? Am I allowed to exclude them? And chances are each one of us has a them that we'd like to exclude from this. A person who's difficult to love. Uh, A person from your past that you'd rather not think about. A neighbor who just really drives you crazy. Uh, Someone from a different political perspective who just always seems like they want to argue. We have all kinds of excuses and want all kinds of reasons to exclude people from this love. That's what he's asking. 
Who am I allowed to exclude? And then Jesus tells this story. This is perhaps one of the most famous stories that Jesus has ever taught. Uh, it's kind of been picked up into our common vernacular, where now a good Samaritan is someone who goes out of the way to help when they didn't have to. And that's what we tend to think the parable is about, but that's actually not what the parable is about. And as we read through it, we'll see kind of what the real punch is. Jesus says this, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, this would be a very common thing to happen in that day. The Jericho Road was 18 miles of desert road. Uh, it was called the Bloody Path. It was so violent that Rome posted uh, like guards along the way. It was the perfect place to mug someone and steal from them. And so this was a very common thing that they would have encountered. They would have expected that as soon as Jesus says Jericho Road, they'd be like, yep, I know what's coming. And so this man gets beaten just like they expect. And he's laying half dead on the road. And that path was not a very wide path. There was not a lot of places to hide a body. He would have been strewn across the middle of the road. And Jesus says that a priest and a Levite, both walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, encounter the man. Now, the fact that they're walking from Jerusalem to Jericho means that they just kind of finished their religious duties. Uh, They were religious functionaries. They would go to the temple and they would do some things there for people on behalf of God, and they were walking home. And notice that each one of them, they encounter the man, they see him, and they pass by him. So they walk down the road, there he is, I see him, and they make a choice to pass by. Now remember, this path is not very wide, so passing by is not very easy. It is stepping over, or it is squeaking around him laying there on the ground. There's no excuse for why they wouldn't see him and see his condition. And a lot has been made about why they did this. What's their motivation? Jesus doesn't tell us their motivation. He doesn't tell us if they're busy. He doesn't tell us if they're worried. He doesn't tell us if they're just mean people. He just says that they do this. One historian on this text, he said this, priests and Levites, uh, it's more about who they are than what they do. Priests and Levites, he said, shared high status in the community of God's people on account of ascription. That is, not because they trained or were chosen to be priests, but because they were born into priestly families. They participated in and were legitimated by the world of the temple, with its boundaries between clean and unclean, including clean and unclean people. They epitomized a worldview of tribal consciousness, concerned with relative status and us-them cataloging. Accordingly, their failure to assist the anonymous man would have been laudable in the eyes of many. That they, this crowd would not have been surprised that the priest and Levite walked around, because that's an unclean person. And Jesus picks them because they represent this very us-them thinking of these are the people who are allowed and these are the people who are not allowed. These are the people who are good and these are the people who are bad. And so he picks them, and he's not concerned about why they do it, but what they represent. In fact, they would have probably maybe even be co-workers of the guy who asked this question. Because he's a lawyer, he's an expert in the law. And so far, this is largely what people expect to happen in this story. But the next thing that happens is the twist, the turning point in the parable. Because they would probably be expecting that a Jewish, everyday man would encounter the man. That a regular old working class Jewish man would have been coming down from Jerusalem from his faithful duty at the temple and he would see the guy and he would care for him. Because after all, Jesus is speaking with a Jewish audience. And so it would be kind of a story of the heroes of the everyday guy and it would be kind of anti-clerical, anti-priest and instead 
Every person can love their neighbor. But instead, Jesus picks a Samaritan. And in the original language of the parable, the word Samaritan comes first in the sentence, which in Greek is a way to emphasize or to draw attention to that this is the shocking moment that changes everything in this parable, is that a Samaritan walks along. Now for them, their thinking is that the Samaritan was probably more likely to be the robber or the thief than anyone who's up to anything good. The Samaritans were probably ones who robbed this guy. And so now here comes another Samaritan, and they might be thinking, okay, a few more punches. Or right, well, they're just going to do the guy in. Because in their thinking, in the thinking of the lawyer, and the thinking of the, the Jews in that time, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. It was not possible to be a good Samaritan. The Samaritans uh, were religious heretics. About 100 years ago, before this, they had adopted their own Torah, their own teachings. They had established even a Greek idol in their temple. They were considered to be religious heretics. When Greece came through to try to take over Israel, uh, the Samaritans went along with them and turned their back on the Jews, even though they're distant cousins. And so they're religious heretics, they're political pariahs, they're traitors. They're certainly not people that are worth emulating at all. But Jesus says that it is the Samaritan who, notice, he does the same things. He approaches the man, he sees the man, but he has compassion on the man. That he is moved at the sight of this man's pain. The Greek word that is used there is splachnizomai, which is just a great word. Just a great word. Like it, it, it has this idea of moved in his guts, which sounds like that's what my guts sound like. Splachnizomai. But here's the interesting thing. The only other time that word is used in the Gospels is of Jesus. It's never used of anyone else, only Jesus. And only when he is looking out at crowds who have no one to lead them or someone who he is healing. That this Samaritan, this one who was an outsider, this one who was not part of God's people, is experiencing the same emotion and the same compassion and the same empathy and the same concern that Jesus himself carries as he heals people, as he forgive, forgives sins, as he feeds people. Splagnizomai is what Jesus feels towards hurting people. And this Samaritan, the outsider, is feeling that same feeling. Now, this is why this is so important again. All right, because the Samaritan, he takes care of the man. He sets him on his own donkey, he takes him to the inn, he pays for his care, and he says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take care of the rest. I'm going to pay the bill. And if Jesus had just stopped there in the story, this would be a story about how we should care for people. But Jesus doesn't stop there. That Jesus' point in the parable is not that we should care for people like the good Samaritan. Because caring for people is too easy. Instead, look at the question that he asks in verse 36. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Now, what was the lawyer's question? The lawyer's question at the beginning was, who is my neighbor? In other words, who am I supposed to care for? Who am I supposed to love? Who am I supposed to show mercy to? And remember, his question is a question of exclusion. He wants to know who I'm not allowed or who I don't have to love. But what is Jesus' question at the end? His question is not, 
who is the one that you should care for? His question is, who is the one that you should follow? Who is the one that emulates the very thing that you're asking? Who is the one who epitomizes following the law of God? It is not the priest or the Levite, it's the Samaritan, the religious and political pariah who he probably was wanting to exclude with his question. You see, the punchline of the parable is not that we should go care for people like the good Samaritan, but that the Samaritan reflects more of God than the priest and the Levite. That this one who was an outcast, who he wanted to exclude, is in fact doing the very thing that Jesus says, go follow him. Go emulate him. The one that he probably was asking to exclude in the first place becomes the one that he's supposed to follow. Think about that. And this is why this is so important to get, because it is possible to care for someone, to care for someone's needs, and to still look down on them, to still judge them, to still be discriminatory against them. It's possible to meet someone's needs and still hate them in your heart. Like, it's possible to serve in a food pantry and look down on people who are coming through the line and feel really good about yourself, because you're serving, you're caring for people. It's possible to give to international aid organizations in a, in, a, in a national crisis, like that earthquake we had a couple months ago. It's possible to give to those causes, but when those same people come to your country, you tell them to go back home. Like it's possible to go on a missions trip to a country of black and brown people and then be racist towards your black and brown neighbor here in this neighborhood. Like it is possible to care for people and yet still want to exclude them. It's possible to be a church that says we value all people, but then you look sideways at someone who speaks a different language or looks a little different than you or worships differently than you. It's possible to be a church in the city and even move into the city and you look down on people who've called this place home for their whole lives. Like It is possible to care for someone and feel very good about yourselves and look down on the other person in the process. That's why Jesus' point is not that we should care like the Good Samaritan but that the good Samaritan, in fact, reflects God to this man. And so he needs to look at that person differently. It's a question about what you see when you see people, not how you should care for people and their needs. You see, he is saying the Samaritan that you want to exclude, who, yes, is a religious heretic, who, yes, is a political pariah, who, yes, you would not associate with, he reflects something of God to you, and so you should look at him differently. There is no room for discrimination or prejudice or racism in this kingdom that Jesus is bringing in. And so how we view people is the fundamental question of the parable. Is that what does it mean to love my neighbor? It's not just simply a matter of caring for someone's physical needs and then still hating or discriminating against them. Instead, it is a question of what do I see when I'm looking in the face of another person? That every person that I encounter reflects something of God to me. This is what it means to be made in God's image. And so every person, regardless of their culture, their skin color, their language, their gender, reflects something of who God is to me. And so I need a radical reorientation of my vision. And as a result, then a radical reorientation of my heart. And this is fundamentally what the practice of people is all about. It's not first and foremost, how do we care for people's needs? But how do you and I see people? That the practice of people, as Jesus reestablishes the image of God in the Samaritan and says, follow him, look for signs of God's grace and God's kingdom at work in his life, that is what you and I are called to do as followers of Jesus. 
is to value all people as God's image bearers. Someone who reflects God's character, God's nature, God's creativity, God's insight and his wisdom to me. And as a result then, we celebrate our differences because the more diverse my world is, the more diverse my image of God is, the more I discover more of who God is. And then as a result, as I care for the image of God for people, I will stand up for people who are overlooked and undervalued. Because people who are overlooked and undervalued are people who are made in God's image who are being treated as less than. You see, the point of the parable is not first and foremost that we should care for people, but that we should see people as made in God's image. And so this directly confronts and challenges us in very deep ways. Because oftentimes it is in our differences that we are told we should fear people or we should judge people or look down on people. But Jesus is saying that if the Samaritan reflects something of God's love to you, then you should affirm that, celebrate that, and learn from that. And follow me in my journey to this multicultural, multi-ethnic kingdom that he is calling around himself. And so what does this look like for you and me? To put this into practice in our world. To put this into practice in your life. In a world that's so often divided along political lines, along racial and ethnic lines, along cultural lines. It's, it's ironic for how global and inclusive our world is. We also seem to be very good at hating people still. And the more global and the more uh, political that our world gets, the easier it is to draw up lines across the kingdom of God that Jesus wants to tear down. And so the more important it is for us to get this and to practice this and to learn from Jesus and his way so that we can begin to see God's kingdom come into our world. So I just want to draw three things from Jesus and his parable here to, to help us think about how we begin to put this into practice in your everyday life. Three things that we can draw from this parable that, that make the difference for this Samaritan man that would look like for us to then say, go and do likewise. The first has to do with prioritizing people with our time. Prioritizing people with our time. All three of them are on a journey. All three of them have an agenda and a plan, but only one of them allows his agenda and his plan to get upset. Uh, we don't, again, we don't know why the priest and the Levite are doing what they're doing. They might be on a hurry. They might have a plan and an agenda, like my plan today is to not get mugged. I'm going to keep going. But the Samaritan stops, and his journey is interrupted because of the care that he needs to show to this man in his pain. And, and I think in a world that is so dominated by efficiency, one of the things that we begin to realize is that the kingdom of God is defined by relationships. And relationships are messy. Uh, people are often difficult. And people take time. It's much easier for me to, to punch the clock on my work than it is for me to develop a relationship with someone. But time is giving people the space in my, in my schedule and my attention to actually see them for who God sees them to be. Robert Lupton in his book, Theirs is the Kingdom, a really tiny book that probably shaped my view of people more than any other book. Uh, he says this, uh, The fundamental building blocks of the kingdom are relationships, not programs, systems, or productivity but inconvenient, time-consuming, intrusive relationships. The kingdom is built on personal involvements that disrupt schedules and drain energy. In short, relationships sabotage my efficiency. A part of me dies. Is this perhaps what our Lord meant when he said we must lay down our lives for each other? You see, as long as I am driven by my time, 
and my agenda and my schedule and what I want to get done, people are always going to be a problem to me. But instead, Jesus was often interrupted. He saw interruptions not as a problem, but as an opportunity to share and to demonstrate the love and the power of God in someone's life. And so for us who seek to follow the way of Jesus, it means prioritizing people with our time, allowing ourselves to be interrupted, and allowing our schedule to have space for us to be present with people. Because, you know, when you're in a hurry, you treat people like, like crap, right? Like, you're like, I'm, I gotta get there. I, I, I'm, like, this past week, I was in a hurry. I was in the line at the grocery store. I was like, ugh! Why? Because my time, I'm saying my time is more important than the people who are in front of me. And so in my heart and my mind, I'm just thinking all kinds of terrible things. I'm honking my horn on the way home. The busier I am, the more I am treating people terribly and not able to recognize the image of God. In fact, uh, Princeton Seminary did a study. This was really fascinating. I found this this past week. Uh, Princeton Seminary did a study. They took seminary students. Uh, and they took a class of seminary students. They had half of the class prepare a lesson or a teaching on job prospects after graduation. They had the other half prepare a sermon on the Good Samaritan. They then took both of those groups and they kind of divided them up, mixed them up, and they told half of the group that they were late and they needed to get across campus to give their teaching. They told the other half that they were early and they had time. And so half of this group is like, some of them are going to teach the sermon on the parable. They're gonna, some of them are going to go talk about job prospects. But half of them are late and half of them are early. In the middle of the campus, they put a man in distress. And they wanted to see what difference your thinking makes on how you care for someone. And they found that 10% of those who were in a hurry, whether they were thinking about the parable of the Good Samaritan or job prospects, only 10% stopped. But 63% who told, were told they had time took time to care for the man. Without, they didn't even have to be thinking about the Good Samaritan. Some of them were, but some of them were just thinking about job prospects after graduation. The determining factor was how busy they were, how stressed they were. They thought they were late. And their point was this, that oftentimes we think, man, if I could just think that I need to be like the Good Samaritan, then I would stop and care. But maybe it's more about how busy you are. And this is where our practice of pace, of understanding the slowed down pace that God wants us to live, invites us to then love people. This is perhaps why after three commandments about how we think about God, the fourth is a commandment to rest before we enter into the rest of the Ten Commandments about loving people. Because the pace of our lives determines whether or not we're going to use people or value people. So maybe in your life you need to slow down. The second priority is the priority of our attention of giving people our attention. All three of them see the man, but only one really saw the man. Only one really took the time to see him, to empathize with him, to splagnizomai him, to feel his pain. See, so often we are just distracted from people around us. We're on our phones. We're thinking about what I'm going to do tomorrow. We're constantly drawing our attention in a whole bunch of different ways. But if people are made in the image of God, then every time you are in the presence of another person, you're in some way in the presence of God. And so how I view people and my attention when I'm with someone says a lot about whether I value them or not and whether I'm going to be able to learn from them. I think this is why it's so important that we give our attention, especially across our, our differences, across our cultural differences, our ethnic differences, our racial differences. 
Because the more I, I give my attention to people who are different than me, uh, right, it's easier to kind of stick with people who are just like me. But we have this tendency, I don't know if you've noticed, we have this tendency to make God in our image rather than in his image, where the more I spend time with people who are just like me, the more I think that God is just like me. But the more I spend time with people who are different than me and give my attention to people who are different than me, the bigger my image of God becomes. Because now I understand that this person reflects something of who God is to me too. And so this is fundamentally a question of my attention. Am I giving people attention? Am I looking for signs of God's grace and kingdom at work in their life? Jesus took this even a step further uh, in Matthew 25. Uh, he tells this parable, not even, it's not even really a parable, this teaching about the end of the age, and he says this, The righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. See, Jesus is taking this even a step further to say that in the face of the poor, the imprisoned, the hungry, and the naked, that's where we will find him. That's where we will see his face. Not just that we will care for them, but that that is where Jesus is. And so if we want to find Jesus, those are the people and those are the places we should expect to find him. Those are all categories of people that the world doesn't have time for often, that our culture doesn't have space for often, but Jesus is saying, these are the people that you will find me. And in fact, this is his whole mission was summed up in Luke 4, that he, he's come to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and good news to the poor. That this is the essence of Jesus' mission. And so Jesus calls us to not just care for these people, but to, as we care for them, care for them as if they were Jesus himself. To welcome them as if, he were, as if they were Jesus. As if that was him with us today. That radically reorients how I think about people. That now I'm looking to see the face of Jesus. Shane Claiborne in his book, uh, The Irresistible Revolution, he said this, Jesus never says to the poor, come find the church. But he says to those of us in the church, go into the world and find the poor, hungry, homeless, and imprisoned, Jesus in disguises. That Jesus has a whole bunch of disguises. But it often looks like those things that our schedule and our culture and our efficiency and our economy doesn't have time for. He says that's where we will find Jesus. And so this changes how we care for people. Not just caring for people in order to feel good about myself, but offering care and compassion to people. And in doing so, recognizing that this is like if I were caring for Jesus. And so I'm going to care for this person differently. Lastly, this then leads to prioritizing people in our actions. Now, the Good Samaritan stops, he sees, but he's also moved to do something. And notice that he does what he can, but he doesn't do everything. Right? He doesn't uh, perform surgery on the man. He doesn't set any broken bones. He does what he can with what he has, but then he also offers the man to someone who can care for him as well. All right? So there could be this burden to say, well, I need to do everything. But no, it's what can you do with what you have? What action can you take to care for this person who's in front of you right now? Trusting that God and his community are going to take care of other things that you cannot. But compassion moves us to action, uh, to do what I can with what I have to offer the love and grace that God offers. 
This is where bless comes in. Like we've talked about blessing here as a community. It's a very simple way that I can offer love and care for someone by being prayerfully present in their life, by listening to them, by eating a meal with them, by serving them, by sharing Jesus with them. And we overcomplicate this and say, I need to perform open heart surgery, but we haven't even just stopped and cared for your neighbor by listening to them. So being present with people and caring for them in that way. But the more that I see people as image bearers, the more distressing it will be to me when I start to see how people are mistreated in our world. This is why Martin Luther King Jr. in his sermon on the Good Samaritan, he said this, on the one hand, we're called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will only be an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to the beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. That if we're going to truly be compassionate towards people, and if people continue to get beat up at the same corner of the road, then we should do something about that. The kingdom of God is coming into our world. And what is that kingdom? It is a kingdom of righteousness and justice. And Jesus says when he sits on his throne and he judges the world, it's going to be a question, what did you do for the least of these? And so what actions can we take in our world today to care for those who are beat up on the Jericho Road, to offer care and compassion for those who are the image bearers of God? This is why part of the practice of people is standing up for those who are overlooked and undervalued those voices that aren't listened to in our culture, in our country, because those are the people that Jesus cares about. And so if we're going to be serious about following him, then we should care about them too. Because after all, you and I were beaten up on Jericho Road. Sin had beaten us up. We were left half naked with nothing to our name. And what did Jesus do? He came to us. He got off his donkey, if you will. He wrapped up in the, us in the robes of his righteousness and carried us to our Father's home. And so if we're going to follow Jesus, this is the journey that he invites us into. A journey of seeing everyone as made in his image, of celebrating the diversity of God's kingdom and standing up for people who are beaten on life's highway. And pray for us this morning. Jesus, you call us to love others like you love us to offer the grace that you offer us. And so would you give us eyes to see your face in the face of people around us? Would you give us the courage to welcome people well, to challenge the ways in which people are overlooked and undervalued? Uh, That this is how we share the good news of your kingdom, through compassion and care and concern for people. God, for the ways in which we have judged Uh, or misjudged, would you reveal those things to us? And God, would you give us the grace and the strength to love people like you love us? For your kingdom's sake, for your name's sake. In the name of Jesus, amen. So we approach communion this morning.